You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Rachel Stern. Rachel, thanks so much for being with me today. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Rachel, we're going to talk about your show on Baxter Street at the Camera Club of New York. Um, and I, I, I want to jump right into the, the title of it. And there's, there's so much going on here, not only with your technique and subjects and content, um, but also with, with how the whole thing is, is presented. So, so to begin with, just the, the title, One Should Not Look at Anything. Um, I'd love to hear more about that because that's kind of almost the opposite of what artists are taught, right? Like, just look at everything. Um, sure, right? yeah. Just, just look. So tell me a little bit about that, the title. That, that seems so interesting to me. So the title comes from a line in Oscar Wilde's play, Salome, which is sort of the bedrock reference for the whole project. It's actually my, is it my second or my third show that takes a title from Wilde? I think it's only my second show that takes a title from Wilde, but I'm a devotee of Mr. Wilde's, and um, these pictures really started with the idea of thinking about reading as a visual experience and, like, the experience of looking at letters and understanding them as symbols alongside pictorial symbols like flowers and eggs and candles and things we're used to seeing in, um, you know, traditional Western canon art. Um, so I was really interested in this line for sort of two reasons to pull it as the title. Um, one is that I love Wilde's play, but it's quite cumbersome and heavy in its poetics for an audience to sit and listen as it's performed on the stage. So I wanted to sort of represent the text in a more digestible, in some ways less accountable way. Like you could just look at the images and sort of figure out what you figure out. And then I was also interested in this idea of sort of like, you know, whatever you do, don't think about elephants kind of a logic, like to be told not to look at something is the most you know, enticing, nothing could make you want to look at something more. Um, and so much of the work and so much of Wilde's work is just about the experience of looking and being seen and being looked at and wanting to see things. And so I thought starting with this negation was sort of as much an invitation as anything else. I like that. And, and so to talk about Wilde a little bit, I'm also a very big fan. And and that play, of course, was um, was a tough play for him. It wasn't produced very often in his lifetime, or I think just once when he was in jail, and there was all kinds of problems um, getting that done in, in, in Britain. So, um, But he's, he's a very special character, right? He's a very... Um, I'm not sure how to, how to kind of encapsulate why I'm so attracted to him and actually think about him all the time in some ways. It was after I read a biography of his. But... Um, but there's something that is incredibly attractive about him, right? His, his writing, his, his charm, his wit. Uh, why do you think you keep coming back to him or have used him often? I mean, Wilde has just been sort of foundational for me. You know, I, I read the picture of Dorian Gray in high school. It was a summer reading book for my honors sophomore English class. And we were assigned two books, one of which was called The Pact by Jody Picoult, which I remember forever because it's a trash novel. It's a beach novel about teenagers falling in love and committing suicide. It's like a soap opera. And I read that one first, and I hated it. And then I, with dread, picked up the next book thinking it was going to be just as bad, and it was the picture of Dorian Gray. And actually, 
funny that you mentioned his biography because the book, um, you know, sort of shook me to my core so much that it was the first time as a young student that I took the time to read the foreword and the afterword. And there was a little biography of him. And when I came to understand more of who he was within his lifetime, um, I just fell in love and I, and I couldn't stop. And I started reading everything, his letters, anything I could get my hands on, um, including actually, you know, in, um, in the picture of Dorian Gray, Dorian reads a different book, um, which I cannot do French, so please forgive this, but it's Bois or Against Nature, um, which is by Hoisman, and that's a real book. So this book that corrupts Dorian to live a life only for beauty is a real book, and so then I fell down that rabbit hole. So in my sort of early aesthetic life, I think Wilde was just my natural guide. He fell into my lap, and I followed him wherever I could follow him. Um, and I also think it was sort of like... Wilde and Whitman I cite really specifically as being these guides to like my queerness before I even understood it as queerness. It was aesthetic. It wasn't social or political for me yet. And I just sort of understood these people as seeing the world with the volume on as loud as I saw the world. And um, I didn't quite connect that in all of the ways that it's flushed out throughout my life, but they've just continued to give me so much to rest on and work with. And of course, as you mentioned, you know, Salome is his last work. It's, you know, not really produced in England in his lifetime. He's in jail. His trial is just humiliating and devastating and so upsetting when you, you know, like read about what actually happened in his sodomy trials. And so, um, you know, I think that this play in particular felt really poignant in this moment. And I think that's often how I work is I'm sort of like living my personal, emotional, social life. I'm living my political, civic life, and then I sort of start to ruminate on a text that I've known, and that becomes the bedrock for how I make something. So like in 2020, I did a piece about Candide, um, because I felt like that question of optimism versus pessimism in the heart of the pandemic felt like such a critical, you know, text to fall back on. And in this sort of more chaotic moment, um, and destructive moment, I think Salome felt like a good place to land. It does, it does, and um, I love talking and hearing you talk about Oscar Wilde. Um, I, I'd love to, before we jump into the images, talk about uh, the curator, Dr. Christina mm-hmm. M. Sobolova. Um, curators are kind of important at Baxter Street Camera Club, and I've always noticed when I go in there that the shows are also hung in interesting ways, um, but the curators are, are, of course, chosen by them and, and seem to have their their own their own vision in, a, in some ways. Um, can you tell me a little bit about working with Dr. Sabolova and, and how that was? It's been incredible. So, th- so Senya and I actually came to the camera club through their curatorial open calls. So she and I were a team that presented this project to the camera club together. Um, and I really could not feel luckier or more grateful to have this partnership you know, I've never worked um, on a solo presentation with a curator working just with me. It's usually when I'm doing a solo presentation, it's me and, and whatever institution, the gallerist, the, wherever it might be happening. Um, but to have somebody who's really just thinking and writing and discussing and supporting my project on a one-on-one level has been such a privilege. And then to be able to work with Senya, who's, um, whose own personal work I find so compelling um, and who's also such a talented writer and um, just a beautiful thinker and a real friend. I think one of the things that's been so beautiful about this project is that 
um, there's, this is my first project I've ever done where my sitters are all sitting as themselves. Normally, I sort of do this pictorialist move where it's a picture of my friend, but they're also sitting as the judge. It's a picture of my cousin, but they're also sitting as Lady Justice. And in this project, everyone is sitting entirely as themselves, and it sort of has a gossip element. They're sort of like the people of my life. And one of the things that's been so beautiful is that at the very beginning of the work, um, I think before we even knew we had the show, I photographed Senya because we were beginning our friendship. And then as the show has developed, we've really become um, close collaborators and like dear, dear lifelong friends. And I've been able to photograph her again. So her image appears twice in the show, which is really special to me. I love hearing that. That's um, It's so interesting. And so to jump into the, the images themselves, um, which, as, as you just described, were kind of, you know, are fairly elaborate tableaus that you've worked with in, in different ways in the past. The images in this show, as, you, as you're saying, you approached it very differently. This is also, um, I mean, as, as Cassina said, this is about desire, um, I, I think is what she said in the catalog, but also... Um, you know about uh, this this idea of of what desire means, and um, I, I think this is a, a quote from her text. She was saying, as a self-identified fat person moving through a fat phobic world, that you Stern have often felt excluded from experiences of desirability. So, um, I'd love to hear a little more about that. That's that's a very powerful subject, and um, and and that's also threaded through these works in the show. Yeah, so, you know, I, I had really started this this larger project really thinking about reading. Like I was using E.E. E. Cummings quotes as likely as I was using socialist propaganda text as likely as I was using a lyric from a song. And I was just thinking about words. I didn't really have um, a particular point of cohesion. Um, and then I had my heart terribly broken and I wanted to make a self-portrait and I landed on Salome. Um, really thinking about this character who I've loved, who's this um, Jewish princess or princess of Judea who um, destroys the thing she wants in order to get it, but it's also surrounded by all of these very complex social forces, the lust of her uncle, the um, ire of her mother, the pressures of the court, the rejection of the, you know, the prophet of Christ, like all of these different forces are sort of against her and she exercises her power to get the thing she wants, the head of John the Baptist, to kiss that head. But in order to get that, she first kills John the Baptist. You know, she demands his head on a silver platter. And then in the closing moments of the play, um, she herself is executed, right? The last, the last words are Herodias says, kill that woman. Herod, I'm sorry, not Herodias. Herod says, kill that woman. Um, and so um, I really sort of, landed on that and made this self-portrait uh, behind the words that say, um, if thou hadst seen me, thou wouldst have loved me in a moment when I felt uh, I had not been seen. And from there, I sort of expanded out and started photographing um, all of the people in my world. So my parents appear in the show, my siblings, my dogs, my childhood best friend, my dearest friends and collaborators, artists I admire, um, colleagues, lovers, unrequited crushes, I sort of began to think about my studio as a spider web and anybody who came close enough would get sort of stuck and pulled into one of these sets and layered behind various texts from within the play. Um, and there's several self-portraits. And um, one of the things that I love about the installation, um, I'm really focused, I think in all but maybe two or three of the pictures and most, frankly, portraits I've ever made, 
in this direct gaze of the sitter looking sort of through the lens at the, at the audience, um, which is a note I borrow from Claude Cowan, who's one of my, the patron saint of my studio, one of my all-time favorite artists. And they always kind of look defiantly in this very queer gesture um, through the lens in a wild costume. Let's say it's a self-portrait of Claude dressed as an alien or an angel. And there's this look that says, I dare you to tell me I'm not an alien. I know you can see that the wings are made of tinfoil, but like look me in the eye and tell me I'm not that thing. And you couldn't possibly, you're, you're at their whim. And so in this show, um, in the installation, one of the things that I think is so beautiful, especially with this title, One Should Not Look at Anything, is that you're actually surrounded in this room of all of the people who populate my life, and they're all kind of looking out at each other and at the audience, and there's a lot of sort of eye contact. And um, yeah, I think desire is, is embedded in that. And would it be um, a stress to say that all of the works are almost... Um like love letters in a sense to all the, all the participants that you know? Certainly. I, I really think about um, making portraiture as assuming an honorific form. So for me, um, I actually don't think this is important for all photography. I love, I love photographs made by people who don't like the people they're photographing. I often think about like Bruce Gilden as an example of that. He sort of makes these aggressive, unflattering pictures of people that I find quite unkind, but that doesn't undercut their value to me as photographs. Um, but for me, um, I think about the camera, and this again relates to that idea of desire as an opportunity to really look at someone, you know, like um, we'll land on unrequited crushes because we like salacious topics, but to invite someone to my studio who I am desirous of and who does not desire me back and be able to sit them down and just look at them for an hour and tell them to move the way I want them to move is, you know, an intoxicating trope of the history of photography throughout its application. Um, and so I want to make people look and feel good. And I also want to make them look like how I want them to look. So one of the other self-portraits, I actually borrow a line that Herod says to Salome, this lustful line where he says, I am sad tonight, therefore dance for me, Salome. And I use the quote up until the word Salome, and I'm posed as Salome, but embodying that command. I'm saying, I am sad tonight, therefore dance for me. And so sort of passing that football around between the images and the sitters and getting to sort of shift where the power lies um, has been like an exciting... Yeah, I really do think gossip is a word I keep coming back to, but it feels like there's this sort of... Um, exchange happening amongst the characters who are just the real, you know, people who populate my life. The word you keep coming back to is gothic, you said? Gossip, gossip. Like, oh, gossip. gossip. Like we're yeah. whispering little secrets, like there's little stories behind each gesture and each person and each idea. Right. So I, I want to talk and jump into the kind of technique and some things that are happening in mm. these images. To talk about, uh, there's an image of, I think it was Adam Liam Rose, um, a friend, uh, I imagine, who uh, was thou knowest that thou will do this thing for me, I believe is is the title, and um, and let's talk about this. This is kind of uh, not unlike other images in the show, but also the colors, the typography, the pose. There's so much going on here, and of course the text. So to begin with, I'd, I'd love to talk, you know, in in a kind of in a bigger way about this image, but for now, for to begin with, I'd like to just get into how this image is, is, is built because there's so many layers here. and it, it, It's kind of, you just want to look everywhere in the image endlessly. And mm -hmm. so um, 
So how are these made? Are you using a non-digital camera or digital camera? And then, and then how does this whole set get, get built and set up? Yeah, so I'm shooting digitally, but without any digital intervention. So the pictures are all made in camera. I think of myself as a nouveau pictorialist, so I'm really thinking about an artist like Julia Margaret Cameron, who is creating the image of an angel, let's say. But what we're really looking at is like a small child with the severed wings of a dead swan tied to its back, something quite like brutal and metal brooding inside of this sealed pictorial image. Um, and so I try and think about those types of transformations and embracing like a singularly photographic way of seeing as a means of constructing transformative images. So I'm really relying on those photographic ideas of a singular vantage, right? That's how Cameron makes the baby into an angel by not having multiple vantages, the wings line up behind the child and we read it as a single image of a, you know, a small cherub. Um, so a singular vantage, a distorted relationship to time through the shutter and then like depth of field or the positioning of the focus within the image. So there's no digital intervention. There's no collage element. Everything is arranged in space. I'm working with cut paper letters that I'm making out of hand marbled papers used for book binding and often shooting through plexiglass to suspend things in space. Um, and then just arranging my studios, a bedroom in my apartment. It's not very big. So it's, you know, a, a not super deep space, maybe a 15 foot depth. Um, and um, just sort of arranging things in between my lens and my subject. So one of the other prompts that sort of started this body of work is a friend of mine who's actually in another photograph. Um, it's an orange portrait with him and his partner, Leanne. Uh, a sculptor named Brian Jabs gave me the prompt to think about that space between my lens and my subject. So I had previously been taking a more traditionally like theatrical approach of building a set around a subject and placing them in the middle, and he, very much with a sculptor's logic, said, well, what about all of that space between the subject and the lens itself? So the idea of sort of suspending things or using these lo-fi special effects um, has been really a driving force in the work, and it's been something that's just been really fun for me, that each time I'm setting up one of the photographs, I'm trying to add a little shift in the technique or the construction. Um, and I think probably the easiest way to trace that throughout the work is through perspectival collapse. So very quickly into the project, I realized that if I cut small letters out of paper and put them close to the camera, so like a two-inch letter cut out of paper on the plexiglass near the lens, and then maybe an eight-inch letter 15 feet away on the back wall, I could line things up so that the letters appeared to be the same size, except for that you can tell by the focus that they're actually quite far away. And developing those little tricks kind of became like a fun, it's like a puzzle-solving um, obsession that always drove to the next picture. What can I change? How can I do it differently? It's so fascinating, the idea of shooting yeah, through plexiglass to create all these layers as, as well as literally building the layers. So um, to talk about like typography a little bit, because that's also what's happening here. You're, you're not only creating these elaborate scenes that are infused with kind of pathos and, 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 and all kinds of feelings as well as kind of uh, very exciting palette that changes throughout the whole show, it seems to me. The typography you're using, you know, as you said, cutting out letters with marbled paper, I think that's what you said. Uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's another world in itself, right? This world of, of typography that you seem to be very sensitive to and using it in a way that's... Um, uh, 
that's almost abstract. I mean, you can't get abstract with letters entirely because they they mean something specific. But you're you know you're also spelling out words or sentences. So uh, I mean, just to ask a bit about the typography in there because that's also what is is like pulling the the viewer in to this kind of almost mystery of what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm interested in pushing at that space of legibility, and I love thinking about the letters as teetering on the edge of abstraction and thinking about them as being something that you could sort of grab onto and then start to pull the image apart. So you're looking at a flower or the texture of a draped fabric or you know, a human hand or whatever the sort of pictorial symbols are. And then you sort of realize that this curving thing is actually an S. You know what that curve is. It's a standardized curve that you relate to. And then from that S, you might realize that next to it is an H and next to that is another letter and slowly but surely begin to be able to decode something of language. Um, And some of the images are much more legible than others or parts of the images are more legible than others. And I was really thinking about that experience of making meaning as superseding arriving at meaning itself, which, you know, relates to me personally as a, as a artist who makes a lot of work about literature and is very interested in literature and also is dyslexic and not a great reader and has always sort of struggled with reading, but struggled through it because I'm so hungry for the results. Um, and then also, again, to go back to that idea that like, Wilde's play involves so many of these sort of long speeches that are just peels of beautiful poetry, which are so delightful to digest as a reader. And frankly, myself as an audience member would love to sit and hear them delivered. But the play has struggled as a theatrical work because it's hard to sit down and hear someone just describe beautiful things for so long. Um, And so I really wanted to try and give those words a new way of existing where maybe you don't get the whole thing, but you see that the stars shall fall and you can just think about falling stars or, um, you know, red as blood or these little things might pop out to you and become available. Rachel, it's it's such a pleasure talking to you about this. Um, I want to ask you one more question uh, before we go. And I also want to encourage, of course, all the listeners to see this before it closes on July 29th of this year, 2023. Because it's really a remarkable show and also in a great neighborhood. Um, so, you couldn't uh, find better food. You'll be happy if you come. <laughs> yeah, you'll, you'll have what I learned is like the best sponge cake in New York, I think, nearby. True. Which, which I haven't tried yet, but apparently that's it. <laughs> um, I want to ask you what you're reading at the moment. My cousin, now? delightfully, as a, actually as a gift for opening the show, gave me a book that I just cannot let go of which is called The Faggots and, and Their Friends Between Revolutions. And it's, got, it's full of incredible illustrations and chapter titles like um, Women Wisdom or Faggot Wisdom. Um, and it's, it's, um, you know, it's just been a, a wild ride and a really great place to land as the show goes up on the walls. Thanks so much. I, I want to I thank you for talking with me today and also for for building this this beautiful show. Um, thanks so much. I really wish you well with this beautiful, beautiful show. Thank you. It's been so lovely talking to you, and I really appreciate your time and interest. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. <laughs>